Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Today is the first day of Holy Week, which is the high point around the Christian calendar. During this week, Christians across the globe will be recalling and reenacting the events of the week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Except for our Orthodox sisters and brothers who, for very complicated reasons involving the lunar calendar, will be celebrating next week. (laughs) Palm Sunday initiates this week, recalling Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem to the acclaim of crowds. And later this week will be what is known as the Tritium, Maundy Thursday, which recalls the Last Supper and Jesus washing the disciples' feet, Good Friday, which descends into the suffering of Jesus on the cross, And Holy Saturday, which is the most silent and darkest day of the year as we remember Jesus in the tomb. And then next Sunday, the dawn breaks forth with Easter and the new hope of resurrected life. In our reading from Matthew this morning, from Paul Sunday, we heard the narrative of the entry into Jerusalem. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That question, who is this? And the turmoil that goes with it go deeper than simply identifying who Jesus is, where he was born. The question is, who does Jesus think he is? Or, what does Jesus think that he's up to? And this question follows us all through Holy Week. In a way, this is the question that Christianity has been grappling with ever since. Who does this Jesus think he is? What is this Jesus up to? And the sharp divides that we have today in American Christianity could be seen as different answers to this question. What does Jesus think he's doing? And what answer you end up with depends to a large degree on how you see Jesus within the wider context of what's going on in the Bible. What problem is Jesus coming to solve? How does Jesus see himself as fulfilling the questions of the Hebrew Scriptures? Throughout our Lenten sermon series, we've been tracing a way of reading the biblical text that moves everything forward. We've been looking at ancient texts, which read to us today as violent or as backward, and we've been seeing how in their time, they were a major click forward in human consciousness, a progression of how we apprehend God's love, goodness, and inclusion. And we've seen how these texts can inspire us today to continue looking for where God is inviting us even further. 
Today, I want to explore how this Palm Sunday entry is part of a massive move forward that Jesus is initiating, if we have the eyes to see it. Now, there's no question what the majority of the crowds hailing Jesus thought Jesus was up to. The Jewish people, by this time, had lived under conditions of oppression for more than 400 years. And the crowds think Jesus is coming to bring a change of regime. Now, we want to pause here for a moment. And I want to think about a word, the word empire. You see, the heart of empire is the pursuit of peace imposed from above by systems of power. Let me say that again. Empire is the pursuit of peace imposed from above by systems of power. Empire is an attempt to deal with our most persistent human problems. Chaos, instability, the threat of war. Everyone knows things are not as they should be, and the real answer on offer seems to be power, right? The thing is, the peace of empire always has a cost. When peace is imposed from above, it is always imposed by violence. And someone is always the recipient of that violence. Social and political stability for a majority, or maybe not even a majority, maybe just the privileged, comes at the cost of an outsider and those on the margins. And another thing, empire tends toward abstraction. Uh, We tend to think in terms of just overall peace, like demographics, like are we generally at peace? And that makes acceptable the violence or diminishment of small percentages. Uh, Today we might take it for example the way we talk about the unemployment rate in America. Uh, As of February 2023, in the U.S., it's at 3.6%, which is really nice because in 2020 it was at 14%. Great, so low, only 5,900,000 people are out of work today. See, that's, that's empire. Empire can look at 5,900,000 people whose lives are disordered and, and seeking help because they're out of work and say, that's pretty good, acceptable cost. And we don't think about what that means for each one of those individual 5,900,000 lives. When you look at the Hebrew scriptures, you definitely see a tradition of empire woven right through it. The foundation stories of Israel have violence at their core. The exodus is a liberation through plagues and death. Joshua is this horrifying account of genocide in the name of God. And countless wars against foreign peoples are understood as anointed by God. In the book of Samuel, the people of Israel demand a king so they can be like the other nations, which means so they can be an empire among empires. And this largely succeeds for a time through Solomon when Israel's borders and wealth and military and might expand greatly. But of course, behind that expansion is the heavy burden of taxation, enforced labor, military drafts. But to empire, that's acceptable cost. After the collapse of this empire and its destruction by Assyria and Babylon and the exile of the people, there is a strong thread through the remaining uh, Hebrew scriptures that longs to go back 
and longs for God to return with power and lead the people through violence back to a powerful Davidic monarchy. So that tradition of empire has a ton of space in the Hebrew scriptures, but there's another voice. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there's this counterpoint voice that's woven closely throughout that expresses a deep distaste for empire called the prophetic tradition. From the very beginning, at the installation of the very first king, Saul, there is a prophet standing by telling the people, this is a bad idea. You are not going to get peace by violence. Samuel's the first to express this, but he's very far from the last. All the prophets have as their major target the critique of empire. You could picture the Hebrew scriptures in one sense as an argument between these two voices. The tradition of empire insists the only way to peace is through violence, and that while the cost of death and oppression is sad, it's acceptable for the greater good. And then you get the prophetic tradition, which sees the violence and rejects it and proclaims that God is with each and every displaced, oppressed, and destroyed life against empire. So that gives us some context for our question. Who does Jesus think he is? Right in Jesus' day, these two traditions, empire and prophet, continued to exist in tension. And it's clear that the majority of the crowds that, Jesus, uh, that acclaimed Jesus that day on Palm Sunday were there uh, thinking Jesus would fulfill the expectations of empire. The very palms the people waved were an echo of a previous leader who pursued peace by violence uh, against an empire. N.T. Wright explains that in the long folk memory of Jerusalem and its surrounding villages, stories were still told about the famous Judas Maccabeus, who 200 years before had arrived in Jerusalem after conquering the pagan armies that had oppressed Israel. And he, too, was welcomed into the city by a crowd waving palm branches. So these palm branches are a direct link back to here is another person who is going to free us from empire by violence. No wonder the priests who are eyeing the Roman guards all around the city nervously demand that Jesus tell the crowd to be quiet because everyone assumes that he is fomenting rebellion. This understanding of Jesus has not remained in the past either. For much of Christian history, since Constantine married the Roman Empire and Christian religion, theologians have picked up on Jesus' language of the kingdom of God and the, the tradition of empire, and they have, they have said that Christendom is the empire that Jesus started. And so they use the violence of empire to expand Jesus' rule. The political entity of Christendom may be gone today, but Christian empire is not. Today, it just takes a spiritualized form. Uh, Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom of God, but there is still a violence, and there's still an acceptable cost because this spiritual empire is about saving people from hell, and the acceptable cost is lots of people are going there. It's still peace through a form of violence. But... This isn't the only way to understand Jesus or to understand Palm Sunday. Because if we pay attention to Jesus closely, we find that he belongs not in the tradition of empire, but the tradition of the prophets who look at the violence of empire and its acceptable cost and say, God doesn't find this cost acceptable. 
If we pay attention to Jesus in his life, we find that Jesus has no interest in going back to the monarchy of violence. Instead, Jesus seems to be going forward to something totally new. We see Jesus naming and touching and gathering individuals, especially those individuals who are the acceptable cost of empire, the outsider, the morally judged, the failures, the sick, the forgotten, the poor. We see Jesus transgressing all the boundaries of social stability that empire puts in place, the rules of how things are that keep everyone where they should be. Jesus puts together people who should never be together. The tax collector and the anti-empire zealots, the Jews and the Samaritans, men and women, pure and impure. He puts them all at a table and says, love each other. And when Jesus later in this holy week stands arrested before Pilate, charged with rebellion, Jesus answers Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight, but it is not. Now, not of this world here doesn't mean otherworldly or spiritual. It means like the other kingdoms. If my kingdom were an empire, then we'd be fighting. We'd be using violence for peace also. But I'm doing something totally different, Jesus says. So what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus up to? Jesus is forming community. Against empire, empire, remember, is peace imposed from above, always with the acceptable cost of the marginalized and the oppressed. Jesus counters with nothing more than the forming of community. Community, this pursuit of peace grown from below, not from above, below through relationships of mutual interdependence. In community, each person is seen for themselves as beloved and belonging. In community, there can never be an acceptable cost for human flourishing because the only point of community is the well-being of each of those individual lives. You see, what Jesus is up to when he enters Jerusalem with his odd little band of mismatched, uneducated, and unimpressive followers is the creation of this little group of people who know themselves and one another as the beloved of God and who live like it. They're animated by divine love. And that is still what Jesus is up to. The unimpressive, small, daily work of bringing people together who don't belong together, putting them at a table, and then teaching them to love one another and to see one another as the beloved of God. Question, how does Jesus intend to respond to the brokenness and chaos of the world? Answer, by gathering communities that are animated by divine love. That's it. That's the whole thing. Now, I know, I know, community is one of those words that everybody throws around. Everyone wants community, and it doesn't seem like it's going to solve all of our problems, though, right? I mean, community is nice. Maybe it's part of a well-balanced, healthy life. But the whole thing, uh, in the novel The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky introduces us to this wonderful character, uh, Elder Zosima, who's this wise old monk that people seek out for spiritual direction. Uh, this one woman comes to him, and she confesses that she fears her love is too small. So Zosima tells her a story. He says, I heard exactly the same thing a long time ago from a doctor. 
I love mankind, he said, but I'm amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular, that is, individually as separate persons. In my dreams, I often went so far as to think passionately of serving mankind, and it may be really would have gone to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary, and yet I'm incapable of living in the same room with anyone for even two days. This I know from experience. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. On the other hand, the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. I mean, isn't that relatable? I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. You see, often our idea of community is just another form of empire. It's abstraction right? It's demographics. We could legislate belonging. We can make sure everyone is included. But community, on the other hand, is about living through the process of learning to love actual individuals before us, as they are with all their idiosyncrasies and all their limitations. And this turns out to be a really big challenge for us and the place Jesus calls us to press in. Zosima continues, Love in dreams thirsts for immediate action quickly performed with everyone watching. Indeed, it will go as far as the giving of everyone, uh, give, giving even of one's life, provided it doesn't take too long, is on a stage, and everyone is looking on and praising. Whereas active love is labor and perseverance. Active love is a harsh and fearful thing compared with love in dreams. Have you ever known someone who can really love particular people, whose presence is welcome and acceptance of everyone who comes their way? It's luminous, isn't it? I mean, it really just changes a room. How does that happen? How do we become those kinds of people? You see, this is why community is the whole thing, because the work of Jesus is to create communities of people who are growing the capacity to see and love one another well. And that new communal way of life expands outward throughout the world. Communities that see one another and themselves first through the identity beloved of God. Pearl Church, this way of being community is counterintuitive for us. We've been raised, even in the church, in a highly individualistic culture. We've been trained to focus on our own spiritual lives and our individual goodness. We've been trained to think of our nuclear family with all other connections as optional. And community has not been good for all of us. We have to name this. Many of us bear hurts and trauma from past communities. Being a community is not easy. And for many of us, the work is not so much to love others as to learn to trust them with ourselves again. That is a long and a sacred work. But Jesus will insist on placing us in communities right alongside people we enjoy and people we don't. And our relational wounds need relational healing. So though we may need a time away, and it's totally legitimate to take a step back after being hurt and to find healing, Jesus will gently invite us back to find a safe table worthy of our trust. And this is the ground for our formation into luminous lives of love. Community invites us into being together. 
If there's anything we've learned through the pandemic, it's that Zoom is no replacement for human contact. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Whether on a Sunday morning or in a home group or over a cup of coffee, physical presence is the place where community can do its work on us. Because together we can hear one another's stories and enjoy laughter and connection, but we can also irritate one another. And that is wonderful. <laughs> because it's in being with others who are different than we would prefer that we can practice letting go of getting our own way, we can deepen our capacity for forgiveness and patience, and we can look past our personal preferences to see all people as the beloved of God. So first, community invites us to actually be together. Secondly, community invites us into centering in divine love. See, in community, we're going to run up against the limits of our love. It's just inevitable. And that is just the invitation to lean into the kindness of divine love and to grow. We turn to God together in liturgy, in Eucharist, by steeping in the teachings of Jesus, in quiet contemplative rest in God. All these ways invite us to hold our limitations of love up to God and discover that we are loved, that God never tires of us or grows impatient. And the experience of that love together helps us extend kindness to one another. And we begin, we begin through our shared spiritual practices to see ourselves in God and to see one another in God. Finally, community invites us into a hospitable openness. One of the things that happens is that as soon as we draw a circle, we can believe that that circle is closed and complete. I mean, haven't we all run into a community that's warm and wonderful and vibrant and has no room for us, right? We've all had that experience. But the war work of community calls us to maintain a table that is welcoming and open. And so that means making room for those who disturb our comfortable rhythms and make us aware again, oh, I have more to learn about loving, don't I? We're invited to remain open to being wrong, open to having someone bring us a story or an experience that makes us rethink our understandings. Community forms us by being together, by leading us into divine love, and by inviting us into hospitable openness, which is all just another way to say it just keeps moving everything forward. Pearl Church, this thing we're doing together might not seem like much. We're just a little group of people. How much impact can we really make? But this is everything. Because community is the place where Jesus intends to transform the world. As we've traced the idea of moving everything forward throughout the season of Lent, all the moves forward come together in this. Every person belongs. Every person, not abstractly, but absolutely every person belongs in particular places and particular communities where they are known and seen. Somehow we here at Pearl Church have found each other. And here we are, nurturing our shared life together. And that is the place where we learn everything Jesus has to teach us. This is it. It might seem too small, but that's empire thinking. The healing of the world comes through us today, learning to welcome and love and be with each other. 
Our community doesn't have to be perfect. It will not be. (laughs) But if we can learn to sit together at our common table with people like us and people unlike us, sharing in life together, well, that'll pull us deeper into our sacred story. And that will make us become animated by divine love. That's what Jesus is up to, mounted on a donkey riding into Jerusalem. The crowd may not have understood it at the time, but this divine work is the real answer to our cries for salvation. Let's pray. God, you are always moving us forward. Will you help mold us into community? with space for one another, seeing ourselves and one another always as the beloved of God. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.